Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. And if you listen to this show, I bet you also know you can get it as a paperback, an audiobook, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. For information about me, the books, plus more importantly, thousands of interviews with literary agents, authors, editors, publicity professionals, all the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com, access the entire back catalog of the show. It will change your life. Uh, my guest tonight is none other. I couldn't be more excited. We are talking uh, with Rajani LaRocca. Rajani, how are you this evening? I'm great. How are you? I am doing excellent. And I should take a moment to let esteemed audience know that we are experiencing a slight delay. I will do a little bit of editing and post to, to fix that up. But esteemed audience also knows I hate editing, which is why I leave so much of the show in place. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. <laughs> it's okay. We're uh, just so, going to have to deal with it. It's okay. My first question is, is always, um, esteemed audience knows I never summarize uh, another author's book and I never summarize another author's background. So if you would give esteemed audience an overview of your background. Yeah, so um, I'm an author and I'm a writer and I live in the Boston area and I was born in India. I immigrated to the U.S. as a baby. I grew up in Kentucky, not far from where you are. And um, then uh, I moved to the Boston area for college and I've been here ever since. And um, I knew at a very young age that I wanted to go into medicine. So that's what I studied um, after college. And obviously I went to medical school and residency. And it wasn't until um, decades later that I decided to go back to writing. And I'm so glad that I did. So that, by that time, you'd already graduated from Harvard College, Harvard Medical School, uh, were, were already practicing medicine before you decided to, to start writing seriously? Yes, that's absolutely true. I, uh, I was practicing medicine for over a decade um, before I went back to writing uh, and started taking some writing classes. And I have to say that uh, this path, this kind of meandering path to writing has been a really good one for me. I feel like I rediscovered it at just the right time in my life. Um, my kids were a little bit older. They were in school. I was more established in my medical practice and uh, it was a good time to be creative again. And I have to share a story that I share with kids at school visits, which is that um, when I was in high school, I, I loved writing and I was in a creative writing class in high school. And I told my teacher, I said, uh, you know, Mr. Hertzfeld, I really love this, but I know I'm not going to write um, as my career. I know that I want to go into medicine. And he said to me, who says you have to choose? And the next day he brought in all these books from the library that were by authors who happened to be doctors. And it totally planted a seed in my head. And that seed started to sprout uh, decades later. And so I'm very thankful that he uh, listened to me and uh, kind of helped me keep my mind open to the possibility of coming back to writing. And one last thing that I have to say about this story is that 
when I went back for a high school reunion, when I went back to Louisville to my school, I knew we had sold my first book and I knew it was coming the next year. And the first person I ran into, I literally got out of the Uber and at my school. The first person I ran into was my old teacher who was, you know, retired, but he still came back for reunions and saw um, all the alumni. And I said to him, I said, oh my goodness, you're in my book. And he looked at me and he said, well, I hope I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually a line that he used uh, in our creative writing class that one of the characters in my book says. The line is, poets need time to stare out of windows. And even way back when, he was trying to tell us that uh, that time when you seem to be doing nothing, when your mind is wandering, is not wasted time. That it's just really... Uh, important time. And of course, as soon as you um, saw your your huge advance for your your middle grade novels and your huge advances for your picture books, you thought, well, "What am I? Why did I ever waste time at, at Harvard uh, Medical School? This was this was where I was at, right?" <laughs> oh yes, absolutely, positively, yes. We all know that the way to get rich is to be a writer for kids. <laughs> that's where all the money is i i assume that every author i've ever talked to on this show is, is all about the material wealth that this job provides absolutely absolutely <laughs> so 10 years in uh, to being a doctor and you decide now it's time to start writing what what may what what yeah what what, what brought about that uh, that sudden shift because i know you'd always been a big reader right had you wanted I did. You kind of wanted to be a writer, but obviously, I'm assuming medical school does not leave a lot of time left over for writing. So what prompted this change and why specifically did you want to write for children? So here's the thing. I, uh, I always loved writing. That didn't necessarily mean that I wanted to be a writer. And because to me, I enjoyed the process of writing but it wasn't necessarily linked to getting published, at least when I was younger. And then, um, you know, after 10 plus years of being in medicine and having kids, um, I poured kind of all my creative energies into the kids and like, you know, hosting great birthday parties and stuff like that. Um, and I kept reading. I was part of like, I think three different book clubs at one point, and that was wonderful. And so I, I've always, always, always loved books. And I didn't really think about writing them until I got to this point where I was like, you know, I need to, I need to rekindle my creativity that isn't only about birthday parties. <laughs> so um, I said, well, you know, I used to love to write, you know, why don't I like just start writing again? And for me, as somebody who has always loved school, the first thing I did was, well, how do I like take a class so that I get to be with other people and like have somebody guide me and teach me something? So um, my first writing classes were through writers.com and that was, that was great. And at first I didn't know who I wanted to write for. I thought to myself, I want to write novels. I am a novelist, I'm going to be very serious. And it became very obvious very quickly that I wanted to write for kids because I think the books that mean the most to me, even nowadays, were books that I read when I was a kid, 
the books that stick with me the most, the books that I remember, the books that really kind of shaped who I am and what I think about the world, they, I read them when I was a child. And I, that's not to say that I haven't read wonderful books as an adult, that I, you know, that there aren't books that I love. There absolutely are. But the ones that were most important to me that just spoke to my heart the most at an important time in my life uh, were the ones that I read when I was a kid. So uh, then I started taking some in-person classes at a place uh, called Grub Street in Boston. And I met in person some writers. And that was like the secret sauce in my writing life. I was like, oh, I've met other writers and they're kind of awesome. And we started, you know, forming critique groups and exchanging writing. And when there is somebody that you really like, like a really awesome friend who is saying, well, what happens next? Like, you got to tell me what happens next. And like, I need to know, then it keeps you writing. And, um, and, you know, initially for the first couple of years, I would say that I was really not, I, I wasn't really worried about publication. I was just like, I'm just writing and I'm having fun and I'm just creating something that is from me alone. You know, I'm just like, I'm just doing something because I enjoy it. Uh, and then I took um, some more classes, like including like a kidlet survey class. And I never really intended to write picture books, but then I, we read some picture books and kind of thought about them in this class. And I was reminded of how much I loved picture books when my kids were little and like what kind of qualities I loved in a picture book which was sometimes distinct from the kind of qualities that my kids loved in the picture book, but you know, <laughs> that's, that's the way it goes sometimes. Uh, so um, then I started writing picture book drafts too. I was like, why not just keep going? Um, and then as you know, you have to hold on to that joy of um, writing and like why you're writing and what it gives you um, for a while um, because the path to becoming published can be a long one, but because of friendship, and um, just, you know, people that I really respect and think are awesome uh, as critique partners, uh, I kept going. So if you've met a group of jerks, I might not be talking to you tonight. That's right. But I have to tell you, I really have yet to meet anyone in the kidlit community who is a jerk. Everyone is pretty much like kind of wonderful and generous and, you know, enthusiastic and, you know, lovely and creative. I, um, I have to say that when I went to medical school and then residency and started practicing, I thought to myself, these are my people. Like medical people are my people. We're on the same page. We have the same goal. We are all working towards the same end, which is to take care of people. And I never thought I would find a group of people like that again. And then I met writers and I was like, oh, these are also my people. These people are awesome. We're working towards different goals, but like still have the same kind of fun attitude about it. And it's been, it's been lovely. I never expected to meet some of my best friends in my forties. Well, the nice thing uh, about uh, having written uh, now so many books is that even if you never write another thing again, you've got a ticket to the club. You can go to conventions uh, forever and you'll always be able to meet new writer friends. Yeah, that's right, but I need to keep writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, knowing how many books you've got coming out over the next two years, I, I don't think there's any danger that you're going to slow down. But if you chose to, you, you've got that leeway. <laughs> you're in the club. Awesome. That's, that's, that's good to know. 
they don't they don't like let, kick you out of the club, right? You're still allowed in the club. Eventually, you go on. You become represented by uh, Brent Taylor at Trieta US. How long does it take to get from where you start writing seriously to where you get that rep that offer of representation? Uh, about three years. That's not too bad at all. Was that just a standard query, or did you meet him out and about? How did you go to? How'd you go about finding your agent? Okay, well, get ready. Are you ready for a slight fairy tale story? I love a slight fairy tale story. Okay, here's the deal. In 2014, I drafted my first novel. Then I like revised it and I thought it was awesome. And I sent it out to agents. And like, while I got a few nibbles in terms of full requests, pretty much it was no, 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 no. I was like, that's fine. I was like, I need to get better at this. So I kept revising it, okay? And um, in 2016, I pitched it at the New England SCBWI conference as part of Pitchapalooza and um, I had a really good pitch. I won Pitchapalooza and I got like a free ticket to like send this to a couple of agents and, you know, a couple of editors on this uh, panel. And then I was like, oh, wow, I need to make the novel match the amazing pitch I wrote for it. <laughs> so then I worked on it some more. And in 2000, like, and it took like a good nine months or so. And I was like, this is it. This is really good. Like they're going to want it. So I sent it out to those agents and some other agents and I got really great feedback and I got really, you know, high full request rate, all this stuff. And then as often happens, nothing, nothing happened. Like I didn't hear from people. And I was like, huh, I, you know, and you're in this horrible state where you're like, I don't know whether I should nudge them or whether that's just going to prompt them to say no and you're just like uh you know whatever so i just like didn't i just kept trying to query and um it was a really difficult time for me for lots of reasons and i have to tell you that like not hearing from people really was demoralizing because i felt like this novel was really really good and um but other stuff happened in my life and i told i was in my kitchen one day and i was like i was talking to my kids and i was like i don't know why i am bothering with this trying to pursue publication thing. Like, I just wish, like, I just, I should probably just quit and just do my real job and like not worry about this anymore. And my kids, you know, who were, you know, in high school or close to high school at that point, they said to me, they said, mom, we think your stories are really awesome. And we think that other people are gonna think that way too. So you shouldn't give up. And I was like, fine. like after all my advice all these years to you to not give up on what you want to do, fine. I'm gonna have to take your advice, right? So I just kind of like, you know, was going along. And then there's this writing mentorship program called Pitch Wars. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, it is for novelists. So it's for people um, who write middle grade and YA and adult. And um, the idea is that somebody who's more experienced like either authors or editors or booksellers or whoever, um, more experience in the publishing industry can um, mentor uh, writers who don't have agents yet. So I submitted my novel. I was really, you know, waffling about this, but one of my friends, my critique partner said, what do you have to lose? Even if you don't get in, you've still got, you know, agent interest in this. Like, but if you do get in, maybe this is an opportunity to make your book 
that much better. And maybe that will be the thing that, you know, pushes you over the edge. And I was like, fine. So I entered and to my amazement, I was selected as a mentee. Um, I think there were 180 of us and there were like over 3000 applicants that year. I had the perfect mentor, this amazing writer named Joy McCullough. And um, she loves Shakespeare. She has a theater background. She loves Shakespeare. Um, my novel, Midsummer's Mayhem is basically a middle grade take uh, on A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's influenced by A Midsummer Night's Dream. And she had great advice. She loved my book. She loved my writing. And her big advice was to get rid of a main character. And I was like, oh, really? Like, I mean, talk about killing your darlings. I was like, okay. So um, I was like, I hear what you're saying. And then I was like, but I don't like, but he's so funny. And she's like, there are other ways to, you know, bring the humor back into this. I was like, fine. So I was so terrified that I started two different revisions, one with him and one without him. And within three chapters, I was like, he's got to go. So <laughs> this book that I had worked on for three years, I rewrote it in five weeks. Like I had to rewrite basically every scene because he was in almost every scene. And I was like, okay. And I got to tell you, it was way better. It was way better. So at the end of that um, mentorship, which was a, about two months, there is an agent showcase and um, agents basically read a, like a little short pitch in the beginning of the manuscript. And then they comment like in a blog, they just comment and say, send me the whole thing or whatever it is. And um, so I did that. I got, got a bunch of requests and I sent them like there were, we had to wait until that whole thing was over. The day that I could send them, I sent it at 5 p.m. And um, the, the wonderful person who's going to become my agent literally replied right away saying, I can't wait to read this. And at 8.30, he emailed me and said, we need to talk. I absolutely love your book. And I was like, what? And <laughs> I, I literally ran around my house going, ah. And my, my daughter was like, what happened? And I was like, he wants to talk. And she was like, well, you need to reply to him, don't you? So we talked the next day and, um, and that was it. And that was the beginning of awesomeness. We sold Midsummer's Mayhem and four picture books that year. The first year we started working together. Wow. Yeah. I definitely want to talk more about that. It occurs to me that I should quickly remind esteemed audience so that they can receive some of the same wisdom you receive, that they can listen to author Joy McCullough on this very show. Check back on episode 68. We had a wonderful conversation about all things uh, writerly. Uh, and, and Mr. Taylor, if you're listening, uh, come on the show uh, and, and, and we'll hear uh, your advice as well. Uh, and now you are a Pitch Wars mentor yourself, right? Yes, I have been... Uh... A mentor with my friend uh, Remy Lai, who is also a middle grade author. Um, we've co-mentored for the past three years. And so that that brings you that that joy and satisfaction that you're going to help somebody else achieve that same ah running around the house moment. Uh, yes, it's absolutely. Um, I feel like we want to pay it forward because we received so much from the whole um, Pitch Wars mentorship, but also the community we made amazing friends like I am still really good friends with so many people from my pitch wars group it was amazing and you know I will say this much as a mentor because we we make this clear 
look, we cannot guarantee that everyone is going to get an agent and a book deal out of this. Like that's not that's that's not something we have any control over. But we what we can guarantee is that um, you're going to become a better writer. That you're going to learn how to revise. That you're going to know how to read an edit letter and what to you know what to do with it. And you're going to have a stronger manuscript by the time uh, your mentorship is over. And I should also add that you're going to make a whole bunch of friends. And I'm talking about mentee friends, but also like your mentor friends, because literally I can't let go of any of my mentees. I'm like, we're still friends. Tell me what's going on. What's going on with writing and not writing and all that stuff. <laughs> you just build a whole community. Um, good for you. Good for uh, good, good, good for uh, writing in general and good for all the authors that are, are receiving um, that benefit. So, um, aside from, you know, the obvious thing, write a good, write a good pitch, write a good manuscript. What are some of the most common mistakes that you find some of your mentees making that you can help them, uh, correct? So I will say for when we're choosing mentees for pitch wars, um, you know, we're under some time pressure, right? We're talking about like a three month window, basically that we get to work with someone. So it's not a lot of time. And so for us, especially, we're looking for people who know how to write. So the things that we can fix, we can fix plots. We can fix like, you know, tweak your characterization to make sure that you're like, you know, explaining things correctly. We can help you figure out your character's arc. And, um, you know, they're starting here and they're ending up here and like, how did they grow in between? Um, but uh, we, don't have time in three months to um, teach somebody how to write. So what I would say is that, you know, working on the craft of writing, like a sentence level craft, um, uh, understanding, uh, you know, what the, what the purpose of a scene is, um, kind of understanding, even if you are a pantser, so somebody who doesn't like to plot ahead of time, um, after you've written something, how do you then <laughs> figure out what the plot should be? You don't have to know it ahead of time, but you should know it when you're revising. Um, and, uh, you know, just like basic skills, you know, all that stuff we learned in school that some of us didn't really like, you know, including grammar. <laughs> those things matter. And uh, because those are the things that um, if you are already a really good writer, uh, we can help fix all the rest of it, but um, we need people to be at that at that level where you know um, that the person can handle the kind of feedback that that we're going to give. So um, I want to talk. Uh, uh, I want to talk Midsummer Mayhem uh, and and then much ado about baseball, the newest one. Uh, before I do, I have this uh, burning question because I know that you're a doctor and I, I read a blog post you wrote um, for, I was a Writer's Digest about the overlap between being a doctor and an author. Um, and I had talked with uh, Dr. Susan McCormick, who was on episode 117, esteemed audience, make sure you check that out. Uh, and she had told me uh, something that I, 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 I so love. Uh, and we were talking about that feeling of, of when the muse speaks to you, whatever that is, whether it's your, your self-conscious or whatever, you're working hard on a manuscript and then an inspired idea comes to you. And she said that by practicing writing, I'm going to misquote her, so that's why you need to go back and listen to the actual episode, 117, esteemed audience. Uh, but my, my, my best recollection uh, is that 
that that skill that she developed as an author came in handy as a doctor because she'd be thinking about her patients and how to prescribe the best care for them. And she'd be looking at their, their information, thinking about them. And then same process out of almost nowhere, the muse would speak to her and give her some advice on, on how to treat those patients as well. Do you find that to be true? I definitely think that writing makes me a better doctor. I also think that doctoring makes me a better writer. Uh, I think that both of these careers, both of these professions require um, keen observational skills, but not just observation, um, being able to draw conclusions from what you uh, see and feel and hear and uh, smell. Um, so there's that. I think that, uh, as you just alluded, um, you know, everyone thinks of writing as this kind of art that like a thunderbolt hits you and <laughs> suddenly, you know, war and peace comes out of you. Um, but we know, we writers know that yes, there's art to it, but there's also craft and that you spend years and years and years developing your craft and um, honing your skills just like you do in medicine. And uh, that when the muse is eluding you, that you can rely on craft, that you can just sit there and go, okay, I don't really feel particularly inspired, but you know, I know how to plot and I know how to like make, you know, set up a scene and I can just do that and plod through it even when it doesn't feel good. Uh, and then eventually you get back to the place where it feels good. Similarly, uh, medicine, while it is a science for sure, is there is a lot of art to it. And, uh, you know, a lot of the art in medicine has to do with listening. It has to do with listening to the patient in front of you and what they're really trying to say and really trying to get at the heart of that because you can be the most brilliant doctor. If you do not address what your patient is worried about, you have failed. So that's, you know, important. And then the other thing um, is yes, there is a, sometimes an intuition um, that is talking to you saying something is wrong, something is wrong, or I think it's this, or it doesn't seem like this, but it seems like it should be, um, that if you listen to that voice, um, you can uh, sometimes figure out something much more quickly than if you just went through and plotted through your checklist of things. So yeah. And I think most importantly, uh, both writing and medicine are at their heart about people. And I love people. I love the people that I meet and that I get to you know, interact with and learn about. And I love the people that I make up in my head. <laughs> and the, closest, the closer I can get the emotions of the imaginary people to reflect real emotions of real people in the real world, the better my writing is. just thinking that there are some fictional characters that I have cared more about than actual people I have known in reality. <laughs> you know, that is so true. And I also feel like when you're into a book and you are aching when it is over because you're like, I want to spend more time with those people, there is nothing like that feeling. That is just such an incredible feeling. And wow, uh, the idea that I get a chance to help have readers of my books feel that way is pretty amazing. 
So you're a primary care physician. Um, yes. And I, I assume you're one of those part-time type doctors that only works about five to 10 hours a week and the rest of your week is available for writing or are you working a, a little longer than that? <laughs> so I'm technically, I'm in the office three days a week, but I still have to kind of deal with messages and all the stuff, you know, follow up on things and everything the other days. But I do try... Um, as much as I can, except when I'm on call, I can't do this, but I do try to set aside some time uh, each week just for writing. So um, when you're starting, you've got, you know, you've got the, the two kids, so the son and the daughter that are coming into high school and, and, and repeating your advice to them back to you to keep, to inspire you and keep you going. How many hours a week are you working and how are you carving out time amongst that work and your, your family time, plus I assume you occasionally wanted to watch a movie or a television show or read a book for or something. What does your schedule look like? How are you carving out your time to write? So not every week is the same. Um, you know, I would just say as a working mom, you have to just learn to like fit things in when you can fit them in. So you know, when my kids, when I was still driving my kids around to like, you know, sports practices and piano lessons and stuff like that, I would just bring my laptop and I would just be sitting writing or I would dictate in the car on my way to work. Um, I would just uh, find time, little pockets of time. And so I never, like, I don't have a specific ritual. I don't have to be in a particular place. I don't have to like have, you know, perfect circumstances. I just have to just have something to write on and write. And I almost always write on my laptop because I'm a doctor and I can't read my own handwriting. So that's, that's the only thing I need really is some sort of electronic thing that I can write on. Um, and, you know, things have changed since uh, I got my agent and I started selling books because once you start selling books, then like your revision to your editor is due at a certain time. Like you can't just like, you know, wander the earth for a while. Um, and, you know, before all that happened, literally nobody was waiting for me to write anything. So I could take as long as I wanted to. And, you know, but I set myself little deadlines so that I would have something to work towards. Um, uh, I would have a critique group meeting and I'd be like, okay, I have to submit this to my critique group. So I need to get it ready. Or I would go to conferences and I would get critiques for those. And I would have to, you know, I would have a little mini deadline there, or I would set an artificial date on the calendar and be like, I need to finish it by this time because like, and then I'm going on vacation and then this and that, and like, you know, I'm going to be busy. So I would try to create little mini deadlines for myself. Um, and now the deadlines are already there. I just was committed to writing as much as I could. I wanted to make my novel the best it could possibly be. And I wanted to write as many picture books as I thought were good as I possibly could. And so I, when I signed with my agent, I had, he signed me for my middle grade novel, but then I also had five picture books that I thought were ready. So that was like part of, you know, my plan is that I was just like, I'm, I'm not gonna lament how long it takes. I'm just going to be prepared for when it happens. Well, it sounds like uh, the perfect uh, approach is working out for you because I was 
Uh, looking over your release schedule, and, and at some point for, for any publicist or anyone else who's listening and wondering when we're going to talk about the book, we will absolutely talk about Much Ado About Baseball, which released June 15, 2021. The Steve audience can go ahead and be pre-ordering it right now. Um, but in addition to that, you've got what, like five uh, picture books coming out over the next two years? Yeah, yeah. so I, have, I had one book in 2019 that was my debut, Midsummer's Mayhem. I had one book in 2020, uh, my debut picture book, Seven Golden Rings. And I have six books this year. So I had a novel in verse, Red, White, and Whole, that came out in February. I had a picture book, Bracelets for Venus Brothers, that came out in April. Much Ado About Baseball, just released on June 15th. That's another novel. Um, and then I have three picture books in August and September. I have Where Three Oceans Meet, which is coming from Abrams on August 24th. I have my little golden book about Kamala Harris. Like, that's amazing that I got to write that. That's August 31st. And then I have The Secret Code Inside You, All About Your DNA, which is a rhyming picture book that explains the basics of genetics to little kids coming September 14th from Little B Books. I meant to ask you that book about Kamala Harris. I, I, I know that you're um, an ardent Trump supporter. So was that strange <laughs> for you to have to write that book? No, I'm teasing. <laughs> it was the absolute honor of my life to write that book i'm so excited for it she's such an amazing amazing human being and that uh, that one releases when august 31st gotcha um and so to the um to the person who's unfamiliar it would seem like wow you must write like a book a minute you must have just had an incredible stretch there but of course we're looking at many many years work and i'm assuming that there is there a manuscript that that, that wasn't able to find a home that's of course. for how many how many books did you have to write before you came to midsummer mayhem okay that was my first novel that's the first novel i ever wrote that's impressive. Thank you. I feel very lucky. But I did work on it forever. <laughs> how long uh, How long did Midsummer Mayhem take you? I first drafted it in 2014, and I signed with my agent in 2017. Gotcha. And then I'm assuming, the, the, was he able to sell that draft? Or did you uh, have we, to rewriting it? We didn't have to do a ton of revision uh, with him, uh, because I had literally just revised it in that... Uh, five-week crazy um, spurt with joy. Um, so it was in pretty good shape. We did some minor revisions and then, um, yeah. Uh, and we didn't have huge, I didn't have huge revisions with my editor for that one either. So that was, that was good. <laughs> what did that, uh, did that luck continue? Are we talking another three years to get to much ado about baseball or did that one go a little bit faster? Uh, it went a little bit faster but it was also super challenging to write. It was really hard to write. Um, I knew kind of what I, th there's a, there's some magical people in Midsummer's Mayhem that may or may not be from a Midsummer Night's Dream. And um, they're, they're kind of, there's a magical competition going on. And I knew I wanted to write a book about the other side of that competition. And I had this idea um, about, because uh, the people, the magical people in Much Ado, care about sports and they care about math and science whereas the magical people in Midsummer's Mayhem care about cooking and baking and music and art and um, as we know all the children in these in these stories know that all of these things are important but the magical people seem to take sides 
So, so I wanted to write about um, uh, Team Salty, which is, you know, the, the sports and math people. And I had this idea for um, dual protagonists, a girl and a boy who are both math competition rivals and uh, they find themselves on the same summer baseball team and they have a history. Um, and, uh, you know, they don't really like each other even though they have so much in common but they have to find a way to work together because they're on the same baseball team. And, uh, and then there are magical math puzzles and there are mysterious snacks that may or may not help their baseball team. And uh, you know, once each of the kids gets a um, math booklet and with fun puzzles, and once they start solving them, their horrible baseball team that could not buy their way to a win suddenly starts winning and winning and can't can't stop winning basically but then the kids get to a puzzle that they can't solve and something bad happens and then they've got to figure out can they find the ultimate answer that is promised in these math books or are they going to strike out <laughs> when it counts the most so i it was hard because i had never written anything from dual points of view before uh i had a really hard time at first figuring out how to make these characters distinct from one another and yet not make one of them like unlikable uh, because they both are likable and, but they have their own issues that they're not, you know, they don't reveal to each other until much later. And then for the life of me, I could not figure out what the heck the magical people wanted. And so it really, I was sitting there going, I don't know, like, wh why, why are they doing this? So honestly- the plot. No, <laughs> The way I found myself through this story was to write a synopsis. And that's not standard practice for you. That, that, was that a new it, experience? It was not until this book. Because I was like, I hate synopses. Like you're taking my beautiful story that has so much nuance and you're boiling it down to like nastiness. Like just like, and then this happened and then that happened. But I'm telling you, I was like, if I can write a synopsis that makes sense, then I can write this book. <laughs> So I wrote a synopsis that made sense apparently. And then I wrote the book almost exact, like I wrote the book and it followed what I said in the synopsis. So I was very proud of myself. And obviously uh, for, for both of these books, you are, uh, you're, you're, you're not borrowing, you're just, uh, you're repurposing a little bit of Shakespeare here and there. Clearly we've got a bit of a, a Beatrix, is it Beatrice, Beatrice and Benedict thing going on? Yes. How how much do you feel it's strict to do a one-to-one -one to Shakespeare's version? I mean, do you have to get right down to here's the appearance of Don John, or can you just take what you like and leave the rest? And, and does that help me with your synopsis if you just follow the play? Uh, ooh, okay. So I knew I did not want to do a straight retelling uh, for both of these books, for Midsummer's Mayhem and Much Ado About Baseball mainly because uh, middle grade readers in general have not read these books. They have not read, read Shakespeare's plays. So what, like, what am I even, like, what is the point of retelling them for them? I wanted to take inspiration from those plays and tell a different story. So Midsummer's Mayhem is about a girl who loves to bake and she uh, is the youngest of four in a big Indian American family. And she feels a little bit lost and forgotten in her own family because all her siblings are much older than her and they're really awesome at all the things that they do. And she feels like she's not that good at anything. Then she learns about uh, a new bakery that is holding a kid's baking contest. And she feels like if she could just win that contest, 
she can finally prove that she is not the least talented member of her family. But then she meets some, uh, she, she listens to this strangely familiar music coming from the woods behind her house. And she follows um, that uh, music into the woods and she meets uh, a boy who also loves to bake. And so together they kind of bake up all kinds of interesting treats. And then everyone around her starts acting really weird, including her dad, who is a food writer and he's supposed to be helping her bake, but he can't tell the difference between delicious food and disgusting food. So basically it is inspired by a Midsummer Night's Dream. The framework has to do with a Midsummer Night's Dream, like what is really going on. But the story is about this 11 year old girl who wants to feel special in her own family. Similar. I love the idea that uh, your reader will eventually read the actual play and then just throw it down like Shakespeare ripped off with Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the same thing happened with Much Ado About Baseball, which is the heart of that play to me is the delightful antagonism between Beatrice and Benedict and how they're clearly meant for each other, but they can't get over themselves to be together without some trickery from their friends. And so similarly, Trish and Ben, you caught, you caught it, right? Beatrice and Benedict, Trish and Ben, um, they both love math and they both love baseball and they should be friends, but they can't, just can't get there without a little help from somebody else. Of course, because this is middle grade, we're, we're going to see a wonderful friendship that blossoms rather than marriage and happiness forever. <laughs> yes, no, no marriage in this book, at least not between these two. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you'll write a sequel where you catch up to them, you know, 10 years later and we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> and I had read someplace that, that uh, your three favorite uh, Shakespeare plays were Midsummer Night's Dream, Much Do About Nothing, and The Tempest. So obviously my next question is, are we going to see your version of The Tempest at some point? All I can say is I'm working on it. I, re I do, I, I would love to write a book um, that's based on The Tempest. And I've got, I've got some ideas, they're all swirling around. It's been a little bit of a crazy year, but I'm trying to get my head together on that. So yes, I'm trying. You ever Fingers see yourself crossed. maybe tackling like, uh, I don't know, Tragedy, Macbeth, the middle grade version or anything like that? I don't. I, I think of all the tragedies, the Shakespearean tragedies, that is probably the one that I might be able to tackle um, just because like you could make it very cartoony and the witches are really cool. And um, you know, maybe if you don't have death, <laughs> maybe if it's just like selfishness and greed, that kind of thing, we could, I could get away with it, but we'd have to see. Fingers crossed. I hope you find a way to, to do it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Or heck, give Chris Marlowe some love, whatever. <laughs> so um, with, uh, with this series, um, I had a couple of questions and they've gone right out of my head. Uh, this is a riveting podcasting. My apologies to the esteemed audience. Uh, I did want to ask because you had said that uh, the theme in Much Ado About Nothing, or Much Ado About Baseball, uh, is finding your team, uh, friends who are going to stick with you, even when you're not sure you want to stick with yourself. And you needed your team as you struggled to bring the book to life. So you leaned on your writer friends who gave you strength and encouragement and read draft after draft. So what kinds of things did your uh, writer friends do that, that gave you the strength to, to finish this off? 
first of all, <laughs> they told me it wasn't terrible. <laughs> and I think they were telling me the truth. I think honestly, sometimes you're in such a bad spot. So I, I um, joined a new critique group when I was in the throes of trying to figure out what to do with Much Ado. And I basically, you know, had been like, I met one of my writer friends and I wasn't in her critique group yet. And I was like, you know, I was like, I am really struggling. I, uh, whoever said I knew how to write a novel, they were mistaken because I clearly don't because I don't know what the hell I'm doing and I am lost. And she's like, why don't you just join our group and just see like, you know, just maybe some like fresh perspective. Let's see what happens. And I was like, sure. So I showed up and, you know, I gave them sample chapters and everyone had really helpful things to say. So first of all, they said that it was not terrible, which was really helpful because I needed to hear that because I was like, oh, what if it's all bad? And I just needed to forget it. Um, so then they, you know, we talked about some of these things like, you know, they didn't know the whole story yet. Um, and they were like, well, you know, this character is coming off as really unlikable. And like, we're not like we, you know, why would we root for him kind of thing? And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Maybe I need to clue people in a little bit earlier, like what is going on with him in his head and like, why is he sad? And like, why is he cranky all the time? Um, and then I went back and forth. Like I tried a bunch of different things because it was dual POV, it was very hard for me. And I was like, maybe it should just be one character or the other character. And then I tried a few chapters like that. And I was like, no, like clearly the other character's perspective needs to be in here because it's just not the same story and I don't like it. So I hashed through all of that. Once I got that, like once I was like, fine, it's gonna end up still being dual POV, girl and boy, that's it. Um, then I just like sat down and thrashed around with the synopsis and sent them the synopsis to critique. And uh, was like, this is what I think is going on. Like, what do you think? And that, they helped me with that too. So it was great. And it was nice um, joining a new critique group at the time because none of them had, had ever read any of this. So it was all brand new to them. And sometimes that's the other secret when you're stuck with writing. Sometimes you just need a fresh perspective. And, you know, many times that means time. So like literally put it in the way in the drawer. And then like when you come back to it, a few weeks or months later, it is like, oh, I have, you know, I can see where the problem is and I know how to fix it. Um, or, you know, people who have never read it before. But the other fake out thing that I do when I don't have people who've never read it before and I don't have time uh, is I change which program I'm writing in. Uh, I will, I usually write novels in Scrivener and sometimes I will just like put a bunch of stuff in Word and start writing in Word. Sometimes I will change the font or I will print things out and it will give me a new view, literally on my manuscript. Change the font. It's a, it's a whole new book that you're looking at, huh? Yeah, it just, I think it just fakes out your brain enough that you're like, oh, like I, it isn't the same story, is it? Oh, now I see what part is really boring. Cut that part out. <laughs> <laughs> it was fooling me in Helvetica, but in Times New Roman, there's no hiding. <laughs> there's nothing there's no high and when you print it oh god I would like write notes to myself in the margins like this is awful stop it you know <laughs> <laughs> real real helpful supportive stuff <laughs> put a big x over a page just don't need this page go away page <laughs> and so when you're finding these new critique partners had you already published uh, Midsummer Mayhem Yep, I was, well, 
it, it was in the works. It was probably um, a few months away from being published. So uh, I, 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 I knew I had written one novel that somebody wanted to publish. <laughs> the question was, can I write any other novel that anyone wanted, would want to publish? <laughs> well, now I'm, I'm assuming you're working on something new that we can't yet talk about. Do you have the confidence going into that now, two novels behind, or is it still, nope, I have written two novels, yes, but I forgot everything I learned and I'm right back where I started. Where, where are you at in terms of confidence at this point? Okay, so this is gonna sound ridiculous, but it is true. We all know, we writers who write novels, that every novel is a different journey, right? Um, it's not to say that some are easy, although some are easier than others, um, but they're just different from one another. Um, and you know, with Midsummer's Mayhem, like I said before, literally no one was waiting for that book. Like I could have taken 20 years and no one was gonna be crying. It was fine, you know? Um, with Much Ado, I kind of was like, I want this follow-up. Like I wanna have another novel that is in this world. And so I was like, come on, come on, come on. Um, Red, White and Whole, my novel in verse that came out in February, uh, that book, like, I swear, that book showed up in my head and demanded to be written. That book, I couldn't work on it um, immediately. So I had like one day a week when I was allowed to think about it. And then when I finished my, when I turned in my draft of Much Ado, I wrote that book and I, it poured out of me in like six weeks. It was crazy. It was like being possessed. Um, and it was hard in many ways because it was emotionally very um, uh, challenging. It was, it was, uh, it took a lot of um, emotional bandwidth and it was, it was great, uh, but it was it was also just like, oh my goodness, this is either like one of the best things I've ever written or like nobody is ever gonna wanna read it. <laughs> and so, um, so that one was a very different process. And because it was written in verse, I didn't write it in a linear fashion. I wrote it as moments and thoughts and poems here and there. And I just wrote them all. And then afterwards I went back and put them in an order that I thought made sense. It was very interesting process. I mean, I definitely had an outline, a very loose outline of what happened, but the rest of it was just moments and emotions and images and imagery and things that I wanted to repeat and motifs and all that kind of stuff. So that was a totally different process too. Um, my next book with HarperCollins is coming next fall. And um, right now it's called Switch. We don't know if that name is gonna stick. Um, and it's about twin musical sisters. So another dual point of view book, very different um, from the rest. Um, and uh, that was, I had a, like, I had this premise, I started writing it and then I was like, huh, okay, this is really hard. But I'll tell you in terms of confidence, I knew that if I just kept writing it, I would figure it out. And um, I wrote, like I was on a deadline and I wrote like, you know, 20,000 words and, you know, uh, a certain amount of time. And then in the last like two weeks, I wrote another 20,000 words. And it was just like, and they were probably the best 20,000 words. It was just like, boom, it just fell out. And so um, I think what I would say in terms of confidence, getting back to your question is that I have more strategies now for, um, getting through the parts where, which are difficult because 
especially when you're writing a novel, I mean, it always gets difficult at some point where you're like, oh God, this premise is bad. Or like, what am I doing? Or like, I, I'm this, you know, like everything I'm writing today is awful. Um, I have learned that you just have to keep going and let it be awful. And then honestly, in retrospect, you'll look back and you'll be like, maybe some of this isn't that awful. <laughs> so, um, so now I've got like three, I think I've got three novel ideas that I'm trying to like wrap my brain around uh, at the same time. So I've got to, eventually I'm going to pick one of them and just go, go in on that one. Um, and then we'll, we'll see where it leads. But yeah, so it's always an adventure. I have more confidence now because I've done it many times. Um, but, uh, it's always, it's always a different journey for each book. Well, I've seen you describe yourself as a planter, uh, which I love yes. that term. Um, so do you, I mean, do you have some things that I, I know every, every novel is its own journey. I wrote three Bannikers. Each one was harder than the last, even with the same characters. It's a different process every time. Um, but do you, do you find that there are some things that you consistently do? Do you usually know your, your ending in the middle? How much of a plan do you usually start with? So strangely, I usually come up with a premise and I, at least for the three novels, four novels? Well, the three novels that are that are that have been published, I knew the last line, weirdly. Um, and then what I typically do, like nowadays, now that I've gotten some writing experience, is that I, I when I outline, I outline the big plot points first, and then I work from there. And then um, I do a lot of character work in terms of like, I don't do like, I don't focus so much on like random things. Like, you know, some people fill out these character worksheets where it's like, you know, what's their favorite ice cream flavor? What's this, what's that? <laughs> I don't do that. I, I, I kind of try and um, do some uh, exercises, like trying to like um, describe the person in an unusual way or, um, uh, you know, think about like what they're trying to hide, think about what they're proudest of, think about their the things that they love, think of it's a, think about their biggest fear and try and make sure that that happens, um, those kinds of things. And then uh, I try to figure out where to start the story and I'm better at that now than I used to be. <laughs> um, and write a few chapters and see what happens. And so this is where the planting comes in is that I have a plot, I know kind of my plot points and then I go and fill in other plot points too. Um, try and figure out what the bad guy or the antagonist is, you know, trying to do in the meantime. Um, but then uh, when I write a scene, sometimes I just write a scene and let, let, let figure out, I mean, like I have a goal for the scene, but I kind of write and see where it takes me and surprising things happen. So that's the pantsing part of the plantsing where like, I don't know exactly what is going to happen in every single scene. Sometimes I think something like one thing is going to happen and something completely different happens. And I'm like, oh, well, that's kind of awesome. And then I go with that and I'll see, I'll see what happens. Um, and as long as, uh, and so then I just write a full draft. And as long as, uh, when I go back to revise, as long as those scenes feel like they make sense and that they're interesting, I keep them. But if they don't, then I just get rid of them. Do you get rid of them forever? Or do you keep them in a file where you can go back and look at them occasionally? Here's a secret. I always keep those scenes. I always keep those pieces of writing. 
I have never used them. I've never dug them out and used them for anything. It's just that like, it's like this weird thing where it's like, I need to save this because I actually worked hard on it. And like, I don't want it to go away, but I, I never use it. <laughs> well, one day the visitors to your official library will be thrilled that that's all been saved because they can go through that uh, and <laughs> piece that together, write a uh, long master's thesis uh, about it. <laughs> my gosh it's so ridiculous I know I I don't know I mean thank goodness we write in electronic form right because like they can be saved and it doesn't really take that much space if I had piece like if I had pieces of paper that I was trying to save like my husband would literally just incinerate them <laughs> he'd be like you have a book why do you need all this extra stuff and I'm like I don't know now I've got a shelf right over there that still has drafts of stuff I wrote from high school that I should burn, and I haven't. <laughs> no, <laughs> when your library is, is out there, people are going to want to read that stuff. <laughs> so I'll look at it like, oh, adolescent me thought some very different things. This is not, I hope no one ever reads this, but I'm still not going to throw it out. <laughs> no, don't do it. Don't throw it out. <laughs> um, well, obviously... Thankfully, you debut in, in 2019 uh, when the world is just fine. It was, it was fine. Um, but then you've got a book that comes out and then, uh, you've got a picture book in 2020. You're launching here in 2021. I saw that you did um, a, for, for much to do about baseball, you were able to do a, a virtual launch with New York City Bookstore, the, the Books of Wonder, and Chris Barron, who also had a novel coming out. Um, how have you been able to launch your book uh, amidst, uh, you know, this this whole pandemic type thing that's that's, that's been going on? Um, I don't know if you heard about that being a doctor at all, but <laughs> what uh, what have you? What how has launching in 2019, pre-pandemic, and now post-pandemic? How has that differed, and how have you? Where have you found the most success to be able to get the word out about your books? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. Okay, so first of all, I have to say that so much of publishing is very opaque. <laughs> you only find out about like how many books you sold like twice a year, right? And that's like the official number, right? Your publisher will tell you how many books have sold because you've got to calculate royalties. Okay, so knowing that, which is kind of hilarious in the 21st century that we don't, that we can't have like real numbers, like real real-time numbers, but that's fine. It doesn't matter. Why would you want to be incentivized um, in that way? <laughs> <laughs> so just knowing that, um, I decided a long time ago that I need to not worry about um, like actual sales. I'm here to write things that I love and that I hope other people will love and get the word out just because I love the stuff that I write and I also love the stuff that other people write so I want to like shout about books that I love right so that's my goal and then the other thing is that because I write for children um you know I can't like contact children like like that's not right so I want to connect with the people who can get books to children so that includes booksellers of course um, and librarians and teachers. So the wonderful thing about um, launching in 2019 
uh, was that I got to go in person to lots of things. So I had an in-person launch and then I had a big party at my house. I had a ball and uh, we, uh, you know, I got to go to um, meet booksellers at their conferences. Um, I got to um, visit schools and do school visits. I got to go to nerd camps, which are kind of like educator camps where they invite authors. I got to go to those in person. It was awesome. And I got to go to bookstores in person. Like that was fantastic. I had such fun. And um, so the great thing in addition to like meeting people in person and like, I mean, I had baking contests and bookstores and libraries, like we had a ball. Like I got to meet all these kids. They were so wonderful. Um, they they baked creatively. Uh, they asked me fantastic questions about my book. It was just such a joy. So the great thing about all of that was that it, you know, like fills up your heart. It's like, oh, you know, like it's so great that when you get to meet the kids who read your book. Um, but the other thing is that I get to make all these connections with bookstores and libraries and teachers. And so when the world shut down and it was just crazy COVID times, uh, I had a virtual book launch for my picture book and lots of people got to come, even people who were across the country who would never have been able to come to an in-person book launch. And uh, I still got to do school visits and I still got to you know, do nerd camps virtually with teachers and librarians. So, uh, and, you know, and part of it was because I'd already made connections. Part of it is because um, uh, I was in a book promotion group that like just had, we're, we have wonderful people who are all looking out for everyone and telling each other about opportunities. Um, and, you know, part of it is because like, we just had to, like what else were we gonna do? So it's been okay. I, I have to say, so the first, you know, I had two books earlier in um, this year and they were both virtual launches and that was great. It was, you know, it was fine. But after a while, it gets really tiresome being in a room alone by yourself looking at a screen. <laughs> so for Much Ado, I was lucky because enough people were vaccinated, you know, COVID rates were low enough. We had an, out, uh, an in-person outdoor launch with my local bookstore, the Silver Unicorn Bookstore, and at a park <laughs> where there were kids playing on a playground. It was awesome. And then we had a party at home and then I got to do a virtual launch as well. So it was kind of the best of both worlds. And um, I, I think that during the pandemic, when everyone was just alone and scared and um, dealing with all kinds of things, uh, writing helped me and books helped me, reading helped me. Uh, and so I held on to that. I think I bought more books during the pandemic than I have ever bought in my life in, during a year because I was just like, I wanna keep bookstores going. I'm gonna keep, like, if I thought about it, I'm gonna buy it. I'm just gonna buy a book from you, that's fine. And like now I have a giant, you know, stack of books that I need to read, uh, which is fine. <laughs> but, which is my usual state of being only multiplied a little bit, it's fine. Um, so yeah, uh, so it's been, it's been um, not always easy, but it's been uh, wonderful in many ways. There's been a lot of wonderful connections. I've been shocked at how beautiful a virtual event can be. Uh, I've, I've been surprised with how much emotion um, people allow themselves to express over a screen, but um, it has happened. And, uh, and I'm grateful and, you know, so I'm always grateful that, uh, that we're still able to connect to each other and that we all still need books. 
uh, even in these times. And now that we're coming out of them and things are getting better, um, I hope that we keep both things. I hope we go back to in-person things, but I hope we keep some of the virtual stuff because it means that uh, lots of people from lots of different places can still participate. Yeah, I would love to see most book launches have some virtual component as well. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't you want your fans from Indiana or from wherever to, to join in? Yeah. Selfishly, just focus on Indiana. Those are the fans that matter the most. <laughs> you know, you know, I'm gonna keep going back to Louisville, so I'm gonna have to like drop by Indiana one of these days. So I've been to Ohio and I've been to Kentucky, and my daughter's at college in Nashville. So like, hey, why not? Oh, you'll be all through the area then. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, uh, all conversations sooner or later seems like lead to the pandemic. So before we move on, because I want to ask you about um, uh, about about publicists and about some of your school visits and all the wonderful stuff you're doing to to market the book, but. Going through the last uh, year, which maybe maybe it's just better forgotten. Maybe it's maybe it's better not to talk about it. But being a doctor and and being informed about what's going on with the virus does that lessen your anxiety or does that increase your anxiety as as you're experiencing it? Or is there any way to know since you had to experience the whole thing as you? <laughs> um. Oh, that's such a great question. I'll, I will just say I, I'm lucky because I work at Best General Hospital in, in Boston and I'm just lucky. I feel fortunate because some of the people that were on the forefront of thinking about this epidemic and how to treat it, you know, what, once people had it and like what the approach should be of, to practicing medicine to everything, um, you know, are at my hospital. So I was very proud to be, you know, part of that organization. Um, I feel like uh, after the initial scrambling terrifying time in March through like early May of last year um I felt like we okay we had a plan uh to keep people safe and um and we went back to seeing patients in person um starting in June uh in my outpatient practice and uh, I had worked in the respiratory illness clinics that were uh, you know like the places where we put anybody with respiratory symptoms went there um, so that everyone would be suited up and, you know, would be safe and we could do swabs there. Um, and then they, like, they didn't need people from other practices, you know, after a while, which was really comforting because it meant that the numbers were going down and they were able to, you know, man these um, facilities uh, more easily. So um, I don't know. I think that it was a scary time, but it was always heartening to see people pulling together, just see people working so hard um, on behalf of everyone, you know, and once the vaccines came out, I mean, that was just a very incredible process to be just be a part of any of that, you know, helping to encourage people to get it, helping to schedule people to get it, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was very um, exciting and exhilarating because that like, we got to see in real time in our lifetime, what can happen when science um, gets it right, you know, so that was that was really um, thrilling and heartening uh, to be a part of. Uh, and uh, you know, just you, you can see some of the best of humanity come out in times like that. Um, that's not to say that this year wasn't really, really hard. It's been a very, very difficult year. Um, and, and that includes 2021. It's been a very, very difficult year. So um, I don't know. I think all of this stuff is, um, it's an opportunity for everyone to reflect on what 
they love the most and what they care the most about and to try and focus on that more um, as we go forward because no one, I mean, like you couldn't have told me in 2019 that this would have happened. I never would have believed you. Like I would have just been like, that doesn't happen, <laughs> but it did. So um, now that that, now that we've, you know, are coming through a pandemic after all the loss that we have all suffered as a world and as a country, um, how do we take the good things from this experience? And there are a few good things, you know, we learned about what we could let go of and we learned about what was essential. So how do we hold on to what is essential and just keep that in our focus as we go forward? I remain increasingly optimistic, cautiously optimistic, but I reached a point where I short-circuited somewhere in there. And then about January 20th uh, of, uh, of this year, when, when everybody was officially signed in, and again, I apologize because I know you're an ardent Trump supporter and don't want to hear this, but <laughs> once, uh, once the politics were stopped, okay, we survived. As improbable as that is, I think, I think there's going to be an after this. Hmm. Well, what, what matters most now that we have, now that we're all living on borrowed time, what's the thing I most want to write? And that's what I've been doing this, this year. I'm not writing anything about politics, pandemic. No, I'm writing the happiest little tacking animal story you ever saw. Just following my heart. All right. For however long I got, this is what I want to do now. And it puts everything in perspective in a way that will probably last uh, the the rest of my life, certainly, and probably the rest of uh, the lives of most people listening to us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's awesome. I've always heard people, and this has happened to me too, when you write what is in your heart, what your heart is telling you to write, it always leads to good things. Always. Your your mouth to whoever's ears. <laughs> I, hope, I hope that is so. But you know what? The writing itself is a good thing. The, the joy is. story is, is, is plenty of reward enough. It is. It is. It really is. I, I love it when I make myself laugh when I write. <laughs> <laughs> Do you make yourself cry also? Or, or when you make yourself, I love it when I make myself cry when I write too. I, I always I, feel a little bit guilty. I love it, but I'd never want anyone to walk into the room at that moment because I'd have to confess what I'm doing. No. I have okay. deeply moved myself. <laughs> yes. Yes. There were, there were times when I, when I was writing Red, White, and Hole that I was sobbing or I was literally not even writing a scene I was thinking of the scene and I was like in my kitchen chopping vegetables like sobbing if anybody asked me if anybody asked me it was just the onions that's it well if it doesn't move you how is it ever going to move your reader right yeah absolutely so after the joy of writing, obviously, this is a product. You got to market it. You got to get out there in front of it. And you are, must say, are doing just an absolutely fabulous job, not just because you're on, on this program, which wonderful move. Uh, but I saw that you've been uh, writing articles uh, all over the place for, I think, I think I saw a Teen Vogue on there. I saw Writer's Digest. I saw... Um, uh, I saw that you have been on, uh, on, I saw that you got mentioned on the Today Show. Uh, I saw that you were, what's the name of that uh, swell cooking show you were making cupcakes uh, and talking about your, your book on? Oh, Kidlet TV? That was fantastic. I, I very much enjoyed that. I didn't know a show like that existed. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to start watching that more regularly. They are awesome. I had a ball. They have, they, they have a segment where you're in the kitchen and I, oh my goodness, I had such a great time. 
And I know you've got a wonderful publicist who, who could have been nicer at, at, at uh, TBS Media Group. Uh, and then I saw also that you've got um, a relationship with, uh, oh, what are they? The, the book groups that book uh, school visits? Oh, yes. Booked. Booked authors. So how many people do you have working on your behalf and how did you go about well, no, 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 this is this. I want to know how you're in the empire building business. Everybody listening and me, we want to be with you. So how do you go about finding these people to, to assist you and evaluating them? Um, okay. So, all right. So with, I, I'm in an unusual situation in that I have multiple books coming out with different publishers. So some uh, authors like and I think this is true especially if you write in like one category of book if you if you write middle grade novels you usually stick with one publisher um I mean you can change but like but a lot of times people are with the same publisher kind of longitudinally and um I wrote a lot of books and we sold a lot of books to different people and so uh I ended up with this year 2021 where I was going to have six books with five different publishers yeah so um every you know every time you have a book with a publisher you get a publicist who is assigned to you and depending on the size of the publisher um your publisher may your publicist may have a lot of time for you because there aren't that many books coming out per season or they may not have a lot of time for you because they've got like 50 books coming out and they gotta like you know they've gotta do publicity for all of them so um but the publicists at um, publishers do a wonderful job. They do, and the marketing people do the heavy lifting in terms of getting your book, you know, to the review people and into bookstores and like all that machinery um, that you really don't ever see. Um, they put a lot of work into it, um, trying to get your book in front of different people's eyes. So that's awesome. But because I had six books coming out in one year with five different publishers, I wanted, I figured I could, I, I needed somebody else um, in terms of publicity to kind of help me figure out my entire career overall. And so that's where I went with um, uh, Tracy Von Straten, um, who has just, she's just amazing. And she's, um, so she's basically like a, you know, a consultant. And, um, and so we talked for a while and I said, this is what, this is my situation. And this is why I think um, you might be wonderful, the right person to help me. And she was, she's been fantastic, as you know. Um, and then in terms of, uh, what was the other question? Uh, uh, oh, it was a long, sprawling, impossible to answer question, which is what I'm, my, my trademark. <laughs> but, uh, well, I want to break down a specific, and if you don't want to answer a specific, we'll just cut this part out. But uh, did, was she recommended to you or did you go publicist, publicist shopping? How did you decide she was the person? Uh, she was she was recommended by um, another author who was in a similar situation, and so then I um, reached out to her, and then we we had a conversation to see if it, whether it was going to be a right fit. Yeah, and school visits because I saw you've got somebody booked. Oh yes, so I was approached by them. Oh nice. Yeah, um, I was approached by them. Um, I think I think that. Uh, one of the things that I, I mean I don't know I, I'm actually not good at this so I don't know 
<laughs> I don't know how how or why they found me or why they decided I thought would, I would be a good fit. But um, uh, I think we had a conversation also about like what it would mean to like sign with them. And um, it's uh, Allison Hickey is the is the person's name. She's lovely, and um, you know, basically, it's helpful to me, obviously, because um, it's just one more avenue to um, to connect with schools and teachers. Um, but it's also um, helpful to them because you know I'm a person with a lot of books, and I have I write for different age ranges. So I guess I'm an appealing author to some schools because like if they take me on, I can, I have books that fit little kids and like medium-sized kids and older kids. So um, I guess that's, that's helpful. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. They can get you around the whole, uh, whole school. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. I'm basically like, you know, kindergarten through middle school. I, I've got it covered. Well, I saw on, on your website, and this is publicly available, so I don't feel like it's uh, like like it's off the table. But maybe it is. Maybe we'll edit this part out. Who knows? Um, but I was looking at uh, some of your rates for for visits, and you've got you can do a full day uh, up to three presentations of one hour each, plus off at lunch. That's one thousand five hundred dollars. You've got a half day of visits, eight hundred dollars, or you'll do a one hour uh, visit. Uh, that's a hundred dollars uh, or free with the purchase of ten or more books. Um, did you decide those rates? Were you consulted on that? And when you're a doctor and you're presumably you're giving up a day out of the practice, does that really make it worthwhile? This has got to be a thing of love, right? <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a, it's. So here's the thing: you have to balance that you just want to like be in schools and like talking to kids, um, and you know, and that it helps your books with like, so it's not just being a doctor, it is taking time away from writing. This is time that I could be writing. And so that's the whole thing. So it's just got to be worth it. Um, and for me, you know, basically, I'm hoping to incentivize people if I have to travel, like and do this in person to just book a whole day, because it, you know, it basically, even if you go for a half a day, it's your whole day, you know, you're not going to go home and like write more in peace. Uh <laughs> <laughs> after that you're just going to be tired and fried so um yeah uh so yeah that is the and believe me i i don't like asking anything of anyone like i don't like it makes me very heebie-jeebie but i'm like you know what i'm gonna put rates up there because authors deserve to be paid for their time and i figure i might as well just be upfront about it you know and I don't want my time to be devalued and I don't want fellow authors uh, time to be devalued. I wanna make sure that, um, you know, the time that we take away uh, from our other duties and our writing is worth it. I assume even if money were no object, um, but ensuring that they pay, that they've got some skin in the game, make sure that they're set up and they're ready to receive you and, and have a proper visit, right? Absolutely. And honestly, um, we all know this as consumers. If something is free, we don't think it's that valuable. Except for Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available to download free now. For free. <laughs> That's super valuable. Clearly. <laughs> now pay me for the sequels. We'll, we'll, we'll be good. <laughs> I'll get you money eventually. Don't even worry about it. Um, it's okay. Uh, the esteemed audience knows that sooner or later I'm going to ask. It now seems like the perfect time. Uh, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? 
I know. I don't think so. I don't think I've seen either. Doesn't mean that they don't exist, but I have not seen either of them. Gotcha. And when I ask that question, just for any future guest listening as well, don't be sitting on your Bigfoot story and not volunteer it at this point, just because I didn't ask. If you if you saw a leprechaun, I, I, a genie, whatever, I want to hear about it. <laughs> but so far, no, no supernatural experiences then. No, not beyond my own head. I definitely dream about these things, think about these things, but I no, I've not seen one in real life. And of course, you write a lot about magic. Any belief that there might be something to it or it's all just fun and games? Um, there isn't magic in the way that I write about in the real world, but there is a more important type of magic. Honestly, I, I don't, I think that human beings and what they can create is the most magical thing I've ever seen. Like we tell stories that take us to other places. Like we're the only, you know, organism, at least I think that we know of that, that does this. Maybe the, the dolphins have an incredible oral tradition that we don't know about, but as far as I know, we're the only ones that write, write it down. And, um, and that, that is forever gonna be the magic uh, for me is, uh, is the, is story creation and how uh, we as humans from the beginning of time have told stories and uh, that we're going to keep telling stories until, you know, the end of us. Um, and that there are so many common themes and so many things that seem to come up over and over again that seem to be told over and over again, but there are just endless ways of telling them. So that is, that is the magic to me. What's your favorite reader reaction to something you've written? Um, my favorite reader reaction uh, is when a girl came up to me and said, um, I, I read Midsummer's Mayhem five times in a row and uh, I didn't, I wanted to keep reading. So like, can you just write the next one really quick now, please? <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, oh my goodness, bless you. <laughs> uh, and I should also ask you about the STEM Women and Kid Lit podcast. Uh, so what is that and where can esteemed audience uh, tune in after they've listened to the entire back catalog of the show? <laughs> they... Uh, so the STEM Women and Kid Lit uh, podcast is a podcast that I do with my friend Artemis Rarig, who is also a, um, uh, a Kid Lit author, and she works in entomology. So we both have STEM backgrounds and ended up working in Kid Lit. And so that's who we interview. We interview um, women with some kind of background in STEM who are authors or illustrators or both uh, in Kid Lit. And we have a ball. So we, we talk about kind of like their STEM background, their education and what got them into writing and uh, whether they have STEM in their writing and uh, you know, kind of their approach to thinking about writing and STEM. We have the best time and people can listen uh, basically anywhere you can find podcasts, you can, you can find our podcast. And um, 
yeah, we and I there's a lot of me giggling. I'm just going to apologize in advance for that, but there's just a lot of I giggle a lot because I have <laughs> such a great time. I like hearing people go giggle on podcasts. Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe everyone else is gnashing their teeth. But I like to hear that genuine engagement. Well, I have a great time. It's always really fun. Uh, and I'm watching our time, and I, I see it's all uh, flown, flown away. Where does it all go? Uh, we always, it just flies when we're having, when we're having a good time. Uh, my last question, but thank you uh, so very much for, for making the time to, to be here tonight and for sharing all of this information with the esteemed audience uh, and, and with me. It has been an absolute pleasure, and you're going to be writing. I mean, you've got the entire catalog of Shakespeare's plays to, to, to cover versions of, so I assume we're eventually going to do this again of the, with, a, with a future book. Uh, but for tonight, where we'll end it, my, my last question is always some variation of if you could go back to any point uh, in your writing career, wherever you like, and give yourself some advice that would have made a difference for you and might make a difference for all everyone that's watching or listening to us, um, what would you go back and tell yourself? I would tell myself that... Writing is is such a roller coaster of a journey um, that the highs are about as high as you could imagine, um, and the lows can be really low. And to um, to keep going, I, I I think that's it. I mean, and I and I did. You know, here's the thing: is that even at the point when I felt at my lowest and my like. I was just losing patience with everything. Uh, and I felt like I was going nowhere. Um, I, I kept going, you know, because of my children, of course, but also because I just have an innate stubbornness about me where I'm just like, eh, I'm just not going to give up. Like I just, I don't give up. So I would tell myself at that, those points, cause there's not like, there's just one point. There are like multiple times where you're like, Oh my God, what am I even doing? Right. Um, to just keep going and just to write whatever I wanted to. And that I would, that, and maybe just give myself a hint. Cause I think also that like in all the movies where you like know the future, it's all really bad. So I wouldn't really want to know the future, but I would tell myself that um, writing what was in my heart um, was never gonna let me down. And that means like whether things, something is published or not published, the act of writing something you care about is, is worthwhile in and of itself. Uh, and the rest of it, we have very little control over. So we should just like, not, we should let go of that part that is like not controllable and just focus on the things that we can, that we can control, which is us. That is the only thing we can control is you, the writer. So um, I would tell myself, that when the times were rough to just focus on the part that I could control and take joy in it and that will let the, let the rest of it go. That's the perfect note to end on, although I can't uh, resist reminding esteemed audience to go back and check out Hugh Howie's episode where we talk about how little control you have even over you. <laughs> uh, where, Rajani, where uh, can uh, esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media, all that good stuff? Yeah, so my website is www.rajanilaraka.com, R-A-J-A-N-I-L-A-R-O-C-C-A.com. 
and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Rajni Raka, and um, I'm on Facebook as Rajni Raka Writer, I think, and um, I'm on Clubhouse. I think it's R Raka on Clubhouse. Hi, esteemed audience. You know who I am. Go to middlegradeninja.com. You're going to see the back catalog of the show. Read every interview you would ever want to read. Everything good in this world is available at middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Banneke Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.